Welcome to the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast, where we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy, plus you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so use your time effectively by listening, learning, and claiming credit. It's a new way to learn. Just log on to CEimpact.com for more information on podcasts. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome uh, to another week with us, uh, our, our, uh, our second season, as we've been saying before, and we really appreciate uh, all of you who uh, download and listen to us, um, and we hope we find you find our information helpful and clinically relevant, as always. Uh, if you're a new listener, please uh, want to take a second to, to welcome you, and if you're a long-time listener, welcome as well. Uh, if you would take a moment and please go to wherever you uh, like your podcasts and do so like us and uh, subscribe if you haven't already done so. Uh, that helps us. Uh, and also, of course, uh, if at all possible, head over to our producer, CE Impact at ceimpact.com. They have a long list of terrific uh, CE programs for pharmacists and now uh, uh, soon to have uh, CME for, for uh, prescribers as well. And uh, you'll be surprised, I think, uh, uh, of, of the great uh, uh, quality and quantity of, of, of programs they've got, including this program. So if you uh, uh, sign up for for uh, uh, the Game Changers podcast, you actually get can get CE for just listening to me blather on for for a little bit, and then uh, going to the website and answering a question or two. So it makes it I think pretty easy. So so today uh, I want, do want to welcome a guest star um, and and a guest and a co. A, 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 a co-star, I suppose I should say. Uh, so Dr. Sarah Grady is uh, my valued colleague at uh, Drake University. Uh, she is the psychiatric uh, clinical pharmacist at Broadlawns Medical Center here in town. So hello, Sarah. Hello, Dr. Wall. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? No, not too bad. I do appreciate uh, Sarah taking the time to, to talk to us uh, because the paper we're going to talk about today is the paper that did get a ton of lay media uh, uh, um, attention, uh, even in the midst of all the COVID stuff that we were dealing with. And it was the paper that was uh, recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at uh, a comparison of, of uh, psilocybin uh, versus citalopram in patients with major depressive disorder. And since uh, Sarah is a, a a uh, nationally renowned expert in in the field of mental health. I am very grateful for her taking a few minutes of her, her time to, to, to uh, speak to this paper because my guess is she's gotten some questions about it. Um, I, I think at the DI Center we've managed to dodge any questions about it, but I've seen paper I've seen little blurbs on it all over the internet. It's been on Good Morning America. It's been on to the Today Show. So I mean, it's something that that I suspect uh, many of our listeners may have heard about. They may have not had a chance to read the paper, uh, or or they may be getting questions from their uh, 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 patients about. It, and so we thought it'd be a good idea to, to, to go through this uh, this paper kind of really quick and talk about it. So uh, first, we'll we'll uh, kind of discuss the paper itself, and then uh, um, again, I appreciate Dr. Grady's expert opinion and expert analysis of, of her of this pro and con of this of the study and and uh, where she thinks we may be going next with this. So um, as we know, uh, major depressive disorder is a huge issue even before COVID, and uh, I shudder to think what uh, uh, the COVID crisis has done to to uh, mental health 
both in uh, worldwide, and 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 I'm sure Dr. Grady uh, is is seeing things that that uh, a big uptick in a lot of the issues that I think a lot of people have because of COVID. So, um, you know, so it's 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 a big problem even before COVID. It obviously has major effects on quality of life. It has huge healthcare costs, and there's a mortality associated with major depressive disorder that I was certainly taught about. You know, you know, uh, we 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 tend to kind of sometimes overlook the fact that that suicide is a, a piece of, of the spectrum of major depressive disorder. And so this disorder has a mortality associated with it. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think we should we should lose sight of that. So um, we do, I think, fortunately, have some good pharmacotherapy and, and we have a wide range of pharmacotherapy, but uh, it works if you use the definition of works as a remission on some sort of, of, of psychiatric scale, about 60 to 80% of the time. Um, I know uh, some some uh, mental health experts I've spoken to over the years have kind of felt like uh, while they're happy that the FDA has a fairly efficient way of getting antidepressants onto the market, they sure wish there was some sort of carrot for the for the drug companies to do some sort of long term uh, efficacy and safety studies because at this point there really is is no reason for them to do that. They really uh, can get a, a a drug approved for depression in the United States uh, with a twelve week study, and that's usually all it takes. And so, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of really good long-term studies on the efficacy and safety of many of the, the standard pharmacotherapies we use for depression. So, uh, so between that and the fact that, again, they work or you know, they improve symptoms in about 60 to 80% of patients, I don't think anyone would, would argue that we should continue to look for, for new therapies for this, this serious disorder. And so now someone says, well, okay, well, that's terrific, but where do, where do magic mushrooms come in, into it? Well, you know, who, made, who made the call that magic mushrooms were going to help with depression? And there actually is a, a, a uh, a, a very sound uh, uh, physiologic reason why they would work. We know that that uh, many of the the uh, compounds in so-called magic mushrooms, um, which the primary compound there is is psilocybin, is is uh, one of a number of psychoactive compounds that uh, uh, have a number of effects in the brain, but primarily they uh, cause of five uh, HT two A receptor agonism. So they stimulate that receptor, and of course that's a receptor that we know is. Uh, uh, plays a big role in the efficacy of, of many antidepressants. And so uh, it, uh, some of these compounds were looked at in the mid 20th century for, uh, for depression, but as there, as higher doses led to more psychedelic uh, uh, type experiences and, 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 and effects, these drugs and, uh, uh, and compounds eventually became schedule one, which as anyone who's, who, who has ever tried to do research with uh, ca uh, cannabinoids will tell you is almost impossible to get research done then. And so, so uh, once uh, these drugs were, were classified as Schedule One drugs in the United States, people just stopped doing studies on them. And so this paper uh, is not from the United States, it's from the UK. And that may be one of the reasons why they were able to pull it off. And they were, and they, they hypothesized that a lower dose of, of, of uh, uh, psilocybin uh, may have a, a good pharmacologic effect on depression without having mood altering or, or mind altering effects or, or hallucinations or, or any of the psychedelic effects that you can get with higher doses with, with, with this medication. So this was a, uh, uh, a phase two double blind randomized trial. Uh, these people had long-standing moderate to severe depression, um, and and they wanted to compare again uh, the psilocybin compound with escitalopram as as an active control arm over a six-week period. Uh, this was very much, in my opinion, a a, a, a um, 
a pilot study. So, I mean, you know, we're not going to, I don't think we're going to open up a magic mushroom farm tomorrow and start, and start hawking its, its, its use for, for depression quite yet. And, and even this isn't the complete report of the study. And, and they mentioned several times in the paper that uh, this was just kind of the first report of the efficacy and safety and that they actually did a lot of other uh, analysis of these patients. And that will, will also come along as well. And who knows, you know, where this paper will lead. Will, will this, will this, you know, kind of open up the floodgates to more studies with these compounds in, in mental health issues. And, and um, as someone, I think we, we need all the, all the therapies we can get. I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. So, so in this kind of, like a kind of a semi-pilot study, it was, it was, it was uh, uh, done uh, in, in the UK. Um, they had things, uh, they had medications provided by separate companies. And, and, and there's actually a, a uh, one of the large uh, UK hospitals does a lot of these there uh, studies for a clinical research organization. So they actually compounded everything and stuff like that. The inclusion, they basically had men and women between the ages of 18 and 80 who were recruited formally through trial networks and social media and other sources. Uh, and they basically just, uh, uh, that, that was basically how they were, were at least an, uh, uh, invited to try to participate in the study. Uh, they excluded patients who had a, an immediate family or personal history of psychosis, uh, medically significant health conditions that made, made the person unstable to participate in the trial as assessed by another physician, a history of serious suicide attempts, a positive pregnancy test, contraindications to taking uh, the, the, the active arm of the drug um, or, or previous use of, of escitalopram, although they did allow previous use of psilocybin compounds. Um, then candidates were, were sent a patient information sheet and invited to a telephone screening at which at what time they did the 17-point Hamilton depression scale. Um, as um, and I'm, uh, Dr. Grady, I'm sure can can, can comment on this. Uh, you know, most of mental health uh, studies with pharmacotherapy they use a a wide and, and ever variety of, uh, array of, of of survey instruments to tr to try and assess efficacy, and that's kind of the the best way to try and uh, try and approach this. And so uh, the Hamilton depression scale has been used for many, many, many years. I would say it's probably the standard for this sort of thing. Uh, and they had to score at least a 17 on that score, uh, indicating moderate to, to severe major depressive disorder on a scale that ranges from zero to 52. Then as far as the methods were concerned, uh, you know, I'll give these guys credit. They, they analyzed these patients up one side and down the other to the point where they even got functional MRIs on them before and after the study. And I think that would have been a challenging thing to get, to, to, to get funding for in, in the United States. So I, I, I compliment the, the authors of the trial because I think that would have been difficult to do. They completed a battery of cognitive and effective processing tests and did a, a wide variety of other uh, survey scales looking at how depression affects their quality of life. Then at that point, uh, the patients were essentially randomized to psilocybin at 25 milligrams a day starting out. And, and then in the escitalopram group, they received one milligram of psilocybin, which was assumed to have negligible activity. Uh, the reason they did this was then basically they could tell all patients, yes, you are receiving psilocybin, but they just didn't tell them what dose they were on. And then uh, once that was done, then they basically, uh, patients who got the one milligram of psilocybin were then transitioned over to escitalopram. The patients were on uh, the 25, uh, uh, 25 milligrams of psilocybin were were, uh, were uh, slowly increased on the dose. And so was the escitalopram. And they did 
did multiple studies throughout throughout the, throughout the trial. They did very intensive uh, uh, psychological uh, assessment and and counseling with these patients. Again, one would assume that that this would be, you know it'd be kind of nice that all patients that have access to this level of, of of contact with mental health professionals, but unfortunately that probably doesn't really happen. Um, and so they they did multiple uh, screening, they did multiple counseling sessions, they did debriefings multiple times by telephone or video calls and and things along those lines. Uh, they had uh, six total visits basically in the six weeks. So again, that tells you kind of how how intensive uh, the assessment and therapy was. Um, at the end of that visit, they again they repeated the functional MRI. They did a wide battery of, of cognitive and effective processing tasks, uh, and then a final psychological debriefing. Then after that, uh, the patients who were in the escitalopram arm were allowed to. Uh, basically taper off the escitalopram by their primary care docs, while the uh, psilocybin group uh, basically were just essentially stopped on the medication at that point, and then they analyzed the, the outcomes. The primary outcome in the study was a change in the score in the 16-item quick inventory of depressive symptomatology self-report, <laughs> which is hard to say three times fast. Um, the QUIDS SR16 score, I believe, is, is how people uh, uh, say that. The scores in that, in that scale range from 0 to 26 with higher scores indicating greater depression. And they look, they, that was the primary outcome at the, at the change from the baseline to six weeks. Secondary outcome included a, at least a 50% improvement on that score. And then again, a host of other survey uh, instruments uh, that weren't really reported in this, and in this report that's going to be reported in a, in, a, in, a more, in a later report would be my guess. They did not have a formal program to analyze adverse drug reactions, but they did ask at every uh, visit uh, if the patients had any issues or were having any problems with the medication and then just basically recorded it. So stats uh, were seemed reasonable to me. Um, they used analysis of covariance, which would make sense. Um, you'd want to uh, try to try to uh, uh, um, uh, deal with a bunch of confounding factors in these kind of studies. And so uh, uh, if, if for no other reason, you'd want to have adjustment for baseline scores so that, that uh, patients who have uh, more severe depression may actually get better, uh, higher uh, improvement as opposed to patients who may not have as high a score uh, on, on the depression scale scale. So they did a uh, analysis of covariance looking at that with adjustments for baseline scores and then did logistic regression as well, uh, looking at some other things as well. Uh, I, to say that they had a lot of people call about it, I think is an understatement. They had a thousand patients actually under, underwent undergoing screening. Um, so I, I think that tells us that, that depression is still very common and that people are interested in, in good treatments for it. Unfortunately, uh, because of the, of the, the screening and, and all the other exclusion criteria, we talked about about 891 patients did not meet inclusion criteria. So one thing about this study is, and, and is, is again, kind of saying it is kind of a, a pilot study because they really had a very narrow group of patients they, they looked at. And in the end, only 59 patients out of the thousand patients who underwent screening were enrolled and underwent randomization, 30 in the psilo, uh, psilocybin arm and 29 to the escitalopram group. Mean age of, of the patients was 41 years. 34% uh, uh, were women. Uh, most were Caucasian, as you might imagine. Uh, depression had been present for a mean of 22 years among the patients in the psilocybin group and a mean of 15 years in the escitalopram group. Uh, so the, these are patients who had, had battled depression for a long time. The, the quids SR16 scores at baseline were, were uh, pretty close to each other between 14 and 16. So then going to the, to the results, uh, primary and secondary outcomes were 
were actually negative. So there actually was not a statistically significant difference uh, in the uh, uh, quids SR16 scores between the psilocybin group and the, the escitalopram group. Um, and I remember this was, this was an active arm study. So, so, you know, one of the things you could say is, okay, well, they didn't find a benefit, but, but they weren't comparing against placebo. So, I mean, you know, they, they were, they were looking at, at, at a drug that is in our country actually approved for, for depression and found improvements about the same. So, uh, you know, it, there's, there's kind of two ways to look at this. You could argue it was a negative study because they didn't find a, a benefit over escitalopram, or you could argue that, that in this small pilot study, uh, psilocybin performed at least as good as an FDA approved drug for, for depression. So it kind of depends on, on, on which way you want to look at that. Interestingly though, remission. So if you, if, if you look at that, at that 50% in improvement at week six actually was better with the psilocybin group, uh, 57% of, of those patients met, uh, met the criteria for remission compared to only 28% in the escitalopram group. And, and again, that, that, that was, uh, a, a statistically significant outcome. It is kind of, you know, you do want to use some caution in, 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 in interpreting that because of course the primary outcome is negative. So then all the secondary outcomes of one of them is positive. You never know if that's due to the play of chance or if that really was something there, but I, you know, certainly, you know, I, I think the most conservative way to look at the results is to say is to say is that it was not better than, than escitalopram, but, uh, maybe a, a less conservative way of looking at the results is that it was as good as escitalopram in treating depression in this small group of patients and actually seem to, to, to maybe have some extra benefit in, 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 uh, in meeting the, the definition of, of remission. Uh, patients, uh, it was very well tolerated. Um, and again, you want to take that with a bit, bit of a caution because only a small number of patients, but uh, a headache was actually the biggest ADR reported in the psilocybin group and it didn't seem to be incapacitating or anything, but headache was what was reported. And they did specifically say that no psychedelic effects, no hallucinations, no dysphoria, anything along those lines was reported. So the authors, you know, kind of say, hey, this is a, a good first study, um, you know, that suggests that 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 these compounds, you know, may have an effect in treating depression that and that they they seem to, to be about as good as as the as the uh, an FDA approved uh, drug for it. And and I think as importantly, don't seem to have a lot of uh, negative side effects associated with it. So that's what the study is. Now, you know, if that's the case, where do we go from here? And what are the pros and cons of the study? And that's why I'm going to turn to, to um, um, our guest star, Dr. Grady here, right after this message from CEI Impact. Do you love game changers? We would love if you, our dedicated listeners, would share your feedback on your experience of listening to game changers every week. Check out the link in the show notes to share your feedback. So we're back talking about the study that just was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at psilocybin versus escitalopram for depression. And uh, I've kind of blathered on discussing the study. So uh, Dr. Grady, again, welcome. And what's, I'm sure you read the study. What's your take on this, on this paper, do you think? Okay, yes. Thanks again for having me. Uh, very interesting study. I agree with your synopsis of the study. Um, I, my initial reaction is this reminds me a little bit about um, ketamine and that's ketamine um, in the sense that um, under controlled, very controlled conditions and at very low doses, uh, we can um, hopefully help uh, depression. And in the case of uh, S-ketamine, treatment resistant depression. 
So uh, that's kind of my initial reaction. It reminds me a little bit of ketamine and S-ketamine. Interesting. And, you know, the, you, because you're a mental health expert and, and, and this is your practice, I mean, I, you know, I think I, think I, I, I kind of live in the, in the primary care world where, yeah, we see a lot of depression, but you see a lot of depression and a lot of resistant depression. So how common is, you know, how common are you seeing patients who have failed, you know, two, three, four, if you want to call them standard antidepressants? And then, you know, I mean, what's, what's in your bag of tricks for those patients? Right. So the majority of what I see, especially because I'm in the county system, uh, treatment resistant uh, depression is typically what I do see. So it's not uncommon for me to interact with uh, individuals that have failed uh, not only multiple uh, antidepressants, but also multiple therapies. So there's a number of things that we try. Uh, obviously, we, uh, we have the FDA approved uh, options. And one of those is fluoxetine in combination with olanzapine. Mm-hmm. Uh, brand, brand name there is uh, Symbiax. That is officially FDA approved for treatment-resistant depression. Obviously, we don't have Symbiax at, a, at, a, at the county facility, but obviously we do have fluoxetine and we do have olanzapine. Sure. Uh, so that is one combination we consider. We also consider using uh, an antidepressant along with perhaps uh, aripiprazole, an antidepressant along with quetiapine, an antidepressant along with brexpiprazole. So there are different antidepressant and antipsychotic combinations that we can utilize together. Um, also, as I mentioned previously, S-ketamine is FDA approved for treatment resistant depression in conjunction with an oral antidepressant. We don't have S-ketamine available in a clinic yet but that is something that we are considering at Broadlands because we have so many um, cases of treatment-resistant depression. Yes, it got slowed down a little bit uh, due to COVID. Surprise, surprise. Yes. Uh, also at Broadlands, we every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we do uh, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Oh, okay. And that is um, kind of, some people consider it really the gold standard for treatment-resistant depression. And so, uh, yes, we are booked up every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for ECT. There's also some other uh, treatments that uh, have been studied, uh, definitely for depression. Um, the evidence base may not be as great for treatment-resistant depression, but they've definitely been studied for depression, and that's TMS, sure. BNS. So lots of other things, lots of things that we can do for um, treatment-resistant depression. And as you mentioned, uh, depression is, is is common and it's treatable. And if we don't treat it uh, effectively, uh, people can take their own life. And so I believe the more therapies that we have available, the more psychotherapy, the more pharmacotherapy, the more uh, every type of therapy, we need all hands on deck uh, to um, save lives, essentially. No, it makes complete sense. And, and, and as I mentioned before, my, my guess is your numbers have probably dramatically increased since the COVID crisis has hit. I mean, we all knew that, you know, the mental health issues associated with lockdown and, and, and you know, having people who are sick and all that other stuff were, were just going to be huge. And I'm sure we're not even seeing the tip of the iceberg while people are partying in the street going, hey, everything's great. We're back to normal. It's like, no, actually, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff in the back that are, that is it's, it's like a tsunami that I, I suspect of as an, hasn't already hit us will be hitting us. And I think the mental health issues associated with, with, with the cost of the lockdown, I think, and, and the cost of, 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 of the pandemic, I think are going to be big and going to continue to be big for the future. So. 
I agree. So, so getting back to the paper, any, anything you want to add, any, any critiques, any pros, any cons, anything that, that stuck out to you as, Hey, that was kind of cool. Or, well, that was, I don't know why, why they do that. Or I mean, anything along those lines. Yeah. And again, I thought your synopsis was wonderful, but a couple other things to consider. You mentioned this at the uh, onset of the podcast here that um, psilocybin can uh, agonize that 5-HT2A postsynaptic receptor. And escitalopram also is believed to work the same way. So um, In in other words, I would kind of expect psilocybin maybe to have some antidepressant properties. So the results in and of themselves didn't really uh, surprise me uh, too much. But a couple of other things to I just want the uh, listeners to consider. Uh, Let's see here. I'm just going to kind of walk through the paper um, a little bit. The study length. one thing to keep in mind is that, and, and everybody is aware, our antidepressants take forever in a day <laughs> to, work. <laughs> to work. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking weeks to months uh, for full benefit. I would say the standard antidepressant trial is probably around eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So on the one result where psilocybin performed a little bit better, um, might be due to the fact that the escitalopram just maybe hadn't reached uh, maximum therapeutic benefit in some folks yet. Uh, that's the possibility. Another thing to think about um, is think about, I want everybody to think about the uh, doses of escitalopram that right. you are just dispensing at your pharmacy. Um, I would I would bet that some of you are dispensing more 30 or 40 milligrams of that. I, we know the recommended maximum daily dose is 20 milligrams a day, and this study followed that as they should. But we also know um, that sometimes people acquire 30 or 40 milligrams yep. a day. So that's another thing to, I guess, a question we can all ask, um, was the dose high enough for everybody, right. and were they on it long enough? I'm not sure. That's something we can all kind of think about. Sure. I like the fact, I don't see this commonly in uh, psychiatric studies, but I like the fact that, that they included individuals up to 80 years old. Typically huh. in psych studies, it's uh, it's pretty standard. 16 to 65 or yes. 18 to 65. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that really, the age um, I found fascinating. Yeah. Uh, like you said, I, I want to underscore that exclusion criteria. I think it's really important that individuals with a history of psychosis or if they have depression with psychotic features, um, psilocybin is maybe not the best thing to take for the risk of, of side effects. We know it's not nearly as potent as LSD, but still, um, I, again, I, I thought it was great. I agree with you. Just the, the, um, awesome endeavors to standardize everything in this trial was amazing. I did question, and they even brought it up in the, in the, in the uh, paper here, uh, (laughs) the blinding (laughs) of the study. Um, and we saw this in the, and maybe this is why it reminds me of ketamine and S-ketamine studies is, uh, people would oftentimes know that they got the psilocybin just by kind of how they were feeling. Sure. Um, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but um, be that as it may, um, I think it's, it's still important to, to look at the numbers and, sure. and we, we have those. So I questioned the blinding a little bit. I think that is maybe as they do further trials, they may want to clean that up a little bit. 
Um, what else could you give? I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to think on that. I know in the ketamine trials, they, they gave the placebo group midazolam because it kind of like mimics mm-hmm. uh, some ketamine side effects. But I think that's, um, that's maybe something to think about the blinding um, of the trial. But the other, I guess the other piece of that is, well, you know, in practice, uh, we're not dispensing, um, you know, when we're dispensing a medication, we know what we're giving them and they know what they're getting. So that's also real world. Um, let's see here. I had just a comment about the, um, patient demographics. Uh, I thought, um, yeah, the 22 years, that is a long time to be dealing with depression and that's common. It's chronic. What I found interesting was, um, the lower percentage of women um, in this study. Yeah, I did too. I, that, that was pretty. That was pretty bizarre. I totally agree with you. You know, um, that's not something you would see in most in most major depression studies, right? Yeah. So that struck me a little bit. I just I don't think I've seen. Uh, I know that it's out there. I just I've never seen a depression trial that had actually more men than and, women. Yeah. No, I so, totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you brought this up. I, we would like to see more diversity uh, in the study not just whites. Yep. Uh, let's see. Another thing that, um, and they, I believe they noted it in the study is that a lot of these folks, um, self self enrolled or self volunteered. Um, so that might've, you know, they might've been a little bit more, um, I don't know, wanting, you know, wanting to be in the psilocybin group and wanting the medication to work. We know in uh, mental health, sometimes this is not all the time, um, but sometimes the power of suggestion is what it is. So uh, that we want to consider that too. And probably my last point is about the primary outcome. Um, As you mentioned, Dr. Wall, the the HAMD and the MADRAS are really the gold standards for depression trials. So in the future, I really think we need to have the AMD uh, or the MADRAS listed as the primary outcomes and uh, the stats designed to specifically study that. That will give us that stellar um, I guess evidence or a more stellar evidence base that we're looking for. Right. Um, I, I think the now that being said, I think the quids, uh, as you mentioned, this is more of a pilot study, mm-hmm. and this was kind of I think a good thing to assess for a, a pilot study. But um, moving forward, uh, say if I, um, if we, if you and I were ever able to do a a study on psilocybin in the U.S., <laughs> um, we would want to get some Hamdi or Madras uh, raiders uh, just to give, uh, I don't know, a little bit more meat uh, to our bones uh, as far as building that evidence base. But I think for a pilot study, again, I think it was well done. I think they controlled for many things that they could control stellar inclusion exclusion criteria definitely not putting any har- uh, any risk of harm to the patients and, right. um, yeah i think it's a good start for a uh, good discussion right. and i think the other thing to consider uh, as well um, i think sometimes when we think of psilocybin or magic uh, 
mushrooms. We may think about things that we read in the 60s and 70s where uh, things were not standardized. You know, this, this is different. This would be in a controlled setting with, um, you know, medical personnel. Uh, they would have to find, refine the, the dose and uh, obviously get more side effect uh, information. But again, I, I think that's why it reminds me of, of ketamine as ketamine. It's just sort of like you go in, you go to a clinic, it's highly regulated. Um, you know, it's periodic, um, uh, periodically given. You right. know? And, and like I said, in the, in the case of S-ketamine, um, it's required that people take an antidepressant with it. Um, they can't even drive that day. They have right. to be observed for two hours. Yep. So this would be a highly controlled process, just like ketamine and S-ketamine. Right. You know, I suspect, I, you know, I mean, again, we are a long, long, long way, I suspect, from psychiatrists being able to write a script for this or being able to use this in clinic for reasons that go far beyond just, you know, who's going to make this stuff or who, you know, it, you know, I, but you're right. I mean, were it to ever come to market in the U.S., I suspect it would have restrictions that would be at least as onerous for the mental health professional as, as ketamine is, you know, probably more so for, for all the reasons that you might, might suspect. So, I mean, I, you're right. I think, I think there's going to be some serious logistical barriers if it ever, if it ever comes to, to, to market. And again, you could, you know, it, it's going to be interesting, you know, we, you know, you know, what drug company is going to say, okay, we're going to start growing magic mushrooms in the backyard of our, of our, uh, you know, drug company parking lot. And, and we're going to start, you know, you know, we're going to standardize it and we're going to try and get FDA approved for this. It'll be very interesting to see, you know, there's not been a lot of, you know, when we, when you take a thing of things like uh, uh, cannabinoid derivatives, yeah, there's been some, some attempt to try and get, you know, synthetic and cannabinoid derivatives approved for a variety of indications, but in the end, a, a lot of them just either fall by the wayside or I think, yeah, I think the, the people who run the, the, the money, the purse strings of these companies go, well, yeah, but if people just smoke pot and we, they, we don't capture them, how are we ever going to make our money back? And, and one wonders if, if, if that's going to, be some issue here too. The point that you make though, I think is also worth making that, yeah, the, the dose and everything's going to be much more controlled. You know, I, um, I'm, I'm not sold that I, I lived through the sixties, but, but I, but my parents did and, and not that my parents did a lot of stuff like that, but, uh, uh, they assured me that, uh, that, uh, um, the doses that, that, that were used of like LSD, for example, in the sixties are far, far higher than were used, you know, years later. And so, you know, things like, you know, you know, psychotic breaks and, 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 you know, terrible flashbacks and all that other stuff that you you know you read stories of or see you know bad television movies of that were made and you know those those things are, are just very very unlikely to happen because these are much more controlled doses and i think that that is a point worth making so well terrific sir i really appreciate your time um, um i agree with you this is a, it's a it's a fascinating study i think it's gotten a lot of lay media uh, attention but you know as i said i think we are a long long way in this country from you know one mushroom tid for somebody for somebody who's got depression so um uh, so anyway so but but i do want to thank dr grady uh you know and uh i i uh, uh, appreciate her time and her expertise, and hopefully she'll allow us to, to to call upon her expertise in the future when we take a look at, at issues like this. So thanks again, Sarah, for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a uh, good day. You too. Well, thanks again for everyone listening to us. Again, uh, hit that like on the podcast, uh, hit that subscribe button, head over to CE Impact, and take a look at some of their terrific uh, uh, CE programs, including this program. We will catch you next week, but until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. 
Check out the CE for this podcast at ceimpact.com or download the Pharmacy Network app by searching CE Impact in your app store and join the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Happy learning!